Welcome to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast, a community of love, acceptance, forgiveness, and belonging. For more information, be sure to check us out online at shorelinecc.com. Amen, amen. Isn't it good to know that the Lord is always with us, He surrounds us, He's in us. And today as we head into this new year, we're going to be looking and I encourage you to turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Chapter 4, today we're going to be kind of doing a solo, this is not a part of a series. But we're going to look at what does it mean to grow as a family. This, this past week, how many you sent your kids off to the bus stop or to the car or wherever you stand to. I'll never forget, uh, when we lived back in, in Northern Virginia, the D.C. area, the first day of school was an epic moment for our neighborhood. But you had two kinds of people there. You had the people that were, and the parents and the guardians and, and moms and dads, aunts and uncles, that they were bringing their kid to the bus stop, and for the first time they had never done this. And so they were coming to the bus stop with tears in their eyes, with anxiety in their heart. I'm letting my baby go. How many of you have ever felt that? And then there was a guy named Reggie. Reggie, my neighbor, he stood at the bus stop and he went, free at last, free at last, thank God almighty, I'm free at last. And he let it shout and he let a whoop of joy and the seasoned parents were joining with him and right next to him with his whole group, they were cuddling each other and trying to help each other through it. But the thing that they had in common, whether you're one of those, you're like, I can't wait till my kid goes to school or you want to hold on to your baby a little longer. I'm not going to tell you which one I am, but you, my kids know. All right, no matter what category you find yourself in, the, the thing was, they both saw the value of sending them off to prepare them, right? Because we want to train up our children, whether we're sending them to school or it's homeschool. You know, we've done homeschooling in the past, and sometimes with school starting, there were tears of, I've got all this work to do, and I've got all these things to do. Wherever you were, by we, I mean Stephanie. Um, <laughs> she's the one who gets stuff done around our house. But as we walk through this, getting things done, we all value preparing. And this is what Paul is talking about today. He's talking about how do we grow together. So I invite you to read with me. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4. And let's focus on these verse, first verses together. Would you read this with me? Let's read together. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. One glorious hope for the future. So today Paul is instructing us, a prisoner, literally a prisoner for, for Christ, on how we walk this faith out, how we grow together as a family. And in this he's identifying the three key things that we're going to mine into today. And the first one is that we are all called. Look at the person next to you and say, you are called. Now don't call them a name, just say you're called. We are all called together. But the second thing is that we're called to walk in our calling not only are we called, but we're also called to walk in the calling, right? It's not just answer and hang up. We receive the call. But Paul is saying that we need to walk in that calling. And in that, he's saying that the goal as we walk is that we're all walking to unity. Let's all say unity together. That was very unified. Good job. So as we walk out, 
You're going to hear a lot of corny jokes throughout this morning. But we're also going to figure this out as we receive the call of God, as we walk in this, but know it's important to be together. Psalmist wrote, how good and pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity. Unity. How many of you like to have a little more unity in your life, right? So we're going to talk with us today. So let's start with that first point. The first point is called. Paul starts off by saying, everyone is called. See, being made in the image of God, the imago, the imago Dei, it means that we've been made in his image and that God is out restoring us and he has this call going out to us, a call to return to him, a call to live for him. And as it relates to this book, the Ephesians, Paul has spent the last three chapters laying all this stuff out. He spent three chapters laying it out, laying the groundwork. See, Ephesus was a part of Paul's third missionary journey and it was a place that he cared deeply about. See, when Paul went there, he spent three months reasoning with Jews in the synagogue, laying out the gospel, reasoning, meaning back and forth. He'd throw something out. He would get something back to them. It was this engaging dialogue going on in the synagogue. We also know from the book of Acts that his ministry in Ephesus was long and it was fruitful. He spent two years at the school of Tyrannus teaching the word of God to Jews and Gentiles. Now Tyrannus, he was a, uh, he's often thought of to be a Greek philosopher. And so Paul, back in this day, many theologians believe that Paul would spend the first half of his day, he was a tent maker, literally making a living for him and those around him. And then he would spend, I think, the fifth and tenth hours of the day teaching in this school, going back and forth for two years, laying out the gospel, laying it out. He had a lot invested here. He had a lot going on. We also know from the book of Acts that when Paul was in Ephesus, that he performed many miracles, casting out demons and healing the sick. I think people in Ephesus, they knew who Paul was. They knew that he was present. They knew he was active. And because of Paul's preaching, the sorcerers even repented and they burned their magic books worth millions of dollars. Miracles are performed. He spent two years teaching in the school. He was in the synagogue going back and forth. And even sorcerers, like we are no match for God. They repented, burn their books, burn their books. So see, when Paul says in this opening verse, he says, therefore, he's pointing back to all this stuff. He's pointing back to everything that he's done. He's pointing back to everything that he's just talked about. And what he's pointing back to is he's saying that you've been called by God, but not only have you been called by God, you have been prepared by God. I knew that you guys would love that one. Who's prepared? Who knows the name of this guy? Russell, come on. Have you seen the movie Up? All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Except when the Wi-Fi goes down during electrical storms, okay. But going in, God prepares us. When he says, when God calls us, there is an attachment of the preparation and the authority and all that God is. So when you hear God's voice calling you, when you hear God's voice directing you, you need to recognize his authority is going with that, his power is going with that, his provision is going with that because that's what God does. You know, when my mom sent me out, to go to school, she sent me out prepared, often overprepared. I think I had all that stuff on my back. I had two sandwiches, I had Twinkies, I had Canadian chips, which have more varieties than they do here in America. And that's true. See, God knows everything that we need, and just like your mom or just like our dad, just like whoever is pouring into our life, they give us everything that we need, everything that we need. See, I think the fear of most parents as they send a child out 
is they have this question, are they ready? And that question doesn't go away. I found whether you're sending them to preschool or you're sending them to kindergarten or you're sending them to the first day of junior high or the first day of high school or even the first day of college. Have you ever resonated in you? Are they ready? Have I done everything I'm supposed to do? See, God never thinks, have I done everything I should have done? God pours everything into us. He gives us everything that we need. And just like Russell showing up, the goal is to set him out with confidence. It's to set us out with confidence, knowing that we're there, that God, he's given us all those badges across us, but we often don't look down. We don't see all these things that God's poured into us. And so Paul, he's pointing back and saying, therefore, he's going to look, here are all those badges that are on your life. Here's all the ways that God has poured in you to give you the confidence that you need because I want you running in this new season with confidence. And here's the things that Paul has laid out in the previous three chapters. He starts off back in chapter 1 by reminding them that we are adopted. We are adopted children of God. That the Lord has received us. He's taken us. He's received us in. Paul also said in the latter part of chapter 1, he said that you have an inheritance that God, he's given us an inheritance, a proof of adoption. He hasn't just adopted you and put you in a court. He said, no, you are my children. The inheritance is yours. Receive it. And then Paul goes on, and again in that first, that first chapter to say, and you've received authority. It's Christ's rule in our lives and the world. In chapter 2, Paul talks about the grace of God, how God's grace is in our lives. What is grace? It's something we could never earn. We don't deserve it, but God, he gives it and he pours it into us anyway. And if you've been following along this past year, every time that I talk about grace, I've been laying out that grace opens the door to transformation. See, grace isn't just to give us something that we don't deserve and to pour into our lives, but it's to allow us and to enable us to walk through the door of transformation, to transform our lives to what God would have. And then from there, Paul moves to unity. He's saying that we were made to be together. We were made to be one with God, unified. It's a reminder that we're never alone. So when you're launching out, when you're walking out, you don't need to fear. You don't need to be scared that God is with you. The body of Christ is with you. Whether you're in the Bahamas or whether you're here in Seattle, God is with you and the body of Christ rises up to be with you, unified. That's how we were made to respond. That's how we were made to be together. And then Paul, in the chapter previous to this one, he emphasizes the love of God. The love of God is incomprehensible. It's that seal on our lives. It's that seal on our lives. So we say, and walk confidently knowing that God's calling is accompanied by the provision. He prepares you. He prepares us for everything that we need. And even when we know that, sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Because we walk out into this culture and we walk through doors that scare us. Have you ever walked to a door that scared you in your life? If not, you will. And Paul's saying you need to be reminded that whatever door you're walking through, whether it's a prison door or a new job door, a new relationship door, whatever it is, that God is with you and he's provided for you. But I think we need to keep in mind that as it comes to this preparation in our life, that God often trains us on the job. Have you found that? See, a lot of times, we, you know, I would prefer to be kind of sent off and to be trained and to be fully equipped so that when I show up for day one of the job, I'm fully prepared. I've learned everything I need to learn. How many have showed up to a job on day one and go, I've already learned it all? How's that working for you? As it relates to following God, God's saying, follow me. But it's on-the-job training. 
That's what the gospel is, isn't it? Jesus doesn't say, go off and clean yourself up and then come to me. He says, no, surrender to me and I will make you clean. I will make you whole. I will restore you. And it's the same way in our calling with God. He said, I've got a call in your life. I have a purpose in your life. Follow me. It's on-the-job training. Jesus said what? He said, take my yoke up on you and learn. Learn from me. It's on-the-job training. When we look to the Old Testament, we see all these people that they were not, had the training that maybe a manager would look for coming in when God called them. People like Abraham, people like Moses, like Joseph. And the New Testament, all the disciples. Did the disciples have a lot to learn? They sure did. We just did a series on the life of Peter. Peter had a lot of on-the-job training. He started off doing a lot of things that a lot of managers would have fired him. Don't come back, Peter. That's not how God works. He pulls us in. He prepares us. It's on-the-job training. Because, see, one of our key principles in all of this is we need to recognize that it's our proximity to Jesus that changes us. Right? It's good to have knowledge. You study to show yourself approved. You read the Bible. I read commentaries. I went to seminary. I did all those things. But the thing that changes my life is proximity to Jesus. Speaking through the truth that's important in my life and bringing it alive is that proximity. That's why we see people doing amazing things that by the world standards have had no training. But they have proximity to Jesus, full and alive of him, rising up within their lives. It's that proximity that changes us. It's that proximity that changes us. It changes us. So Paul's saying that we are all called. But then he goes on and he says, I beg you to do what? Walk in your calling. He's saying, look, everyone's called. You've all been made in the image of God. But you need to walk. You need to take some action. You need to step out in your calling. And as I read through this part, the, the first analogy that I got for this is it's like crossing a stream. It's like crossing a stream. This past Friday, I got to go, go and, and do a hike with my favorite hiker. Do you know who my favorite hiker is? Stephanie. Stephanie's my wife. Now, it's a lot easier crossing the streams this time of year than it is in May and June. How many of you cross some streams in May and then come back in August and go, whoa, this is a different experience, isn't it? See, in order to get across the stream, we need rocks to get across, don't we? Especially when it's rushing, especially when the waves are roaring. And so this is what Paul has done. Paul's essentially, he's laid these rocks out for us. And, and he says, I beg you. Now the word beg is very, is very curious. Now normally when you beg somebody to do it, right, you're not saying, I beg you to go to the Seahawks game with me today. I have two tickets on the 50-yard line. They wouldn't have to beg you, would they? Well, I guess if you're some other kind of fan, whoever they are. You're all welcome here, by the way. So We don't beg people to say, I beg you, would you come out and have a hamburger with me? I beg you, would you come out? See, beg often speaks to, to something that has two things in, in common. When we use the word beg, it's often critical and it's often costly. And Paul is talking about this saying, I, I beg you. I beg you because it is critical. He's saying don't miss it and you're, gonna, and you're probably going to want to miss it because it's costly. He's saying you need it and it's costly. So don't be cheap. Don't be tempted to shortcut it. Don't be tempted in your walk with God to do a walk that is worthy of your calling. He's saying I beg you to do this. And he's saying I beg you because technique is important. 
Technique is crucial in all that we do. And whether you're, you're crossing a stream or whether you're going to school or you're in the arts or you're in science, whatever it is, how you do it is important, isn't it? It's more than what you do, but it's how you do it. It's like it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. There are people that would say, I can't hear what you're saying because your life is shouting at me. Technique is very important. I think I, I came face to face with this my first year of college. See, when, when I went to university, I went as a piano major. And see, now so many students, they can find out things on YouTube. They can do online interviews. I grew up in a remote part of eastern Canada in Newfoundland. And so I showed up to university, enrolled my down payment down, having never walked on the campus before. And that was just what we did. I had to send off for a catalog. You know what a catalog is, right? And all this material. I got a letter from the president of university. I got a letter from the department chair. I thought they were personal letters to me. And I was like, wow, this is going to be awesome. I never heard of a forum letter before. I was very excited. And I show up to my first lesson. And my teacher says, I want, Dwayne, I want you to bring in all of your books because until I audition for it, you're on probation for it. I bring in all my books. She said, bring in all your classical books. I said, yes, ma'am. I mean, yes, doctor. And I bring in my books. There's a stack about that high. Because I had to carry them on the plane. But there's a stack about that high. She said, that's all you got? I said, yeah. She said, play me something from memory. I said, I've never memorized a classical piece before. I wish I had a video of her face during this first lesson. Wonderful, gracious lady, she did so much for me, but man, I, I wish I could have chronicled that first lesson. And she said, you've never memorized anything before. I said, no, I've never memorized. She said, so open something up. I said, well, I haven't played these since like this past spring. And you could see just the shock in her face. How did I get this kid? And then she said, well, I want you to play, uh, I want you to play, uh, play scales, three octaves, up and down ascending, descending, contrary motion, all these things going on. And I was like, what? And I started, I'm trying to build myself up to you, can you tell? Going and just playing all these scales, she immediately, after hearing me play one scale, the words of her mouth was like, you want to be a piano major? I'm like, I feel God's called me to study piano here. She's like, well, we got a lot of work to do, don't we? But in the moment, I think it was the Spirit of God filling me because it didn't discourage me. I was just happy to be there. The number one thing that she began to pour me that year, I wanted to do all these fun pieces. I wanted to do all these Chopin, all these Beethoven, all these big flashy showy pieces. And she brought me back to these very simple, boring pieces to build my technique. Because what she said is you don't have the technique to even touch and think about that. We're going to build your technique. And if you will work, we will do it. You've probably heard me stories before. I would be, <laughs> it blows my mind, who does this again? I would be in the practice hall practicing. And, and she would walk by, this is 10 o'clock at night. I'm in the practice hall just, you know, trying to go through, trying to get ready for my audition so that I can continue to be a piano major. She would burst in the hall and say, what are you doing? I said, I'm practicing. She's like, no, you're not. That's not what I told you to do. Your technique's terrible. Curve those fingers. I can tell by the way you're playing that it stinks. You got it. Was, this was how it's verbatim. But do you thank God for a teacher like that? Someone who cares. She's like, you want to be a piano major? Here's what it takes. We're going to build this technique. We're going to get there. And she finally got me to the point to where when it came time for an audition, I was a scholarship piano recipient. I'm not saying I was the best person there, but that's a long way from who let you in the door to. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? 
And she put a love in my heart for technique. She put a love in my heart for getting these things ready so that I could be ready for my senior year. This is what God does in our life. He comes in and says, are you ready to work that technique in your life? You want to do this, but I'm going to pull you back to this because you need to get ready. I'm with you. You're fulfilling the call, but I need to get you ready. Your technique needs some help. And that's not a word that lacks love. That's a word that is full of love, right? If you were to look at a child who was doing something hurtful for them, nobody would look at them with love and say, that's okay, just keep doing what you're doing. Would they? They would look and say, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Why are you speaking that way? What's happening here? And you would help them to correct them because you love and you care about them. This is what God is doing. He, and that's what Paul is saying in this. He's saying, I beg you to walk a life that's worthy of your calling. And he lays out these key stones. And the stones that he's laying out here are humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, and love. Let's say those together. Humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, and love. Now, I thought about sending out like a little sheet on this and having like ratings to one to five and have you kind of rate yourself on how you're doing in these. But what do you do with somebody that gives himself a five on your humility? Right? So, so I chose not to do that. But these are the stones to get across. And I think it's very important that it starts off with humility. Paul starts off by saying, you need humility. Who needs humility? We all do. We all need humility. See, humility, this is the opposite of pride. It literally means a lowliness of mind. Now, humility is not this Eeyore complex or this insecurity complex. See, humility is about considering others better than yourself, not from a dysfunctional standpoint. Does that make sense? That's how we're called to treat our neighbor. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. Considering others, this is what Jesus did. He humbled himself. Jesus was often referred to as a humble king. Nobody had ever known a humble king. They'd known tyrants. They'd known people who tried to place their power over them and their position over them for their own benefit. But what did Jesus do? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is that humility. It is that laying down of a life. It means that we put Christ first above all things. And then we put others and we put ourselves last in that position of serving. That position of serving. So that's the first stone you got to go to, and it's pretty slippery. The next one is what? It's gentleness. See, gentleness is the application where humility is, is, is a way of being, of thinking about it. It's, it's a way that you process yourself and others and God. That gentleness, this is the application. This is how we live it out because faith without works is what? It's dead. You can't walk through a place and go, I'm humble. Like, no, you're not. It's gentleness, it's that application. See, gentleness is the application of how we treat each other. It's that aspect that says, I'm not fighting for my own way. What a world it would be if we just had those two rocks in our life. Humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. What a world of the body of Christ just walked through with humility and gentleness. Not in a rush. Not in a rush. Not in a rush. So humility, gentleness, and then we come to a really slippery rock. Is that third rock? What's that third rock? Patience. How many of you are like, man, I got that down. I'm, I'm standing on that rock. I hit that rock and I start to slide a little bit. This rock causes me to twist a lot of ankles. See, we struggle. How many had a hard time with patience last night when your Wi-Fi went out? Or you showed up to church and tried to download your sermon and there's no Wi-Fi? 
See, we struggle with this. But see, patience, it takes time to nurture, but no one's born with it. What's the first thing that a baby does when they're born? They cry. I was warm. I was safe. I was chilling. I was good. Right? See, every stumble in my life can be pulled back and connected to a lack of patience. How many times have I made mistakes because I had no patience? There's times that I even went the right direction, but I didn't go at the right time. I'm a musician. I should know timing works. Timing's important. Patience is so important. And then Paul moves on to tolerance, which he describes here as being making allowance for others' fault. Tolerance. Now, this is not a tolerance. He's not saying, now tolerate sin, tolerate immorality and, and saying it's okay. It's not a tolerance that says, you do your life your way, I'll do my life my way. And I see you over there, but I'm going to stay over here and I'm just going to tolerate. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about making allowances. You know what making allowances does? It pulls somebody into your life. When someone is struggling, when someone's going through something, when someone has some faults that they're trying to work through, and that includes me. We make allowances for these things in our life and we pull them in. See, tolerance allows for a different pacing. Have you ever gone on a hike or a walk with somebody and they just took off in front of you? It's like, what? Yeah. Sorry, Stephanie. It's, <laughs> it's no fun, isn't it? We walk with people and we hike with people and we go to wherever we go with people because we want to be with people. We want to talk to them. But sometimes we get with people, maybe sometimes it's us, and we just get there and we're just trying to get to the end and we take off. And it's like, wait a minute, that's not why we're there. We're to make allowances, we're to be with one another, we're to talk with one another. We're to recognize that it's not about how fast you get there. At this point in my life, I'm not going to win any races. You know, I did the PRC Sweet Life 5K. Thank you, my Lord, for putting that on put on a 5K with donuts. I'm like, I'm in for it. I'm in it. <laughs> right? Even with donuts, I didn't win that race. But the conversations I had on the way, being a part of a cause, loving people around me, you fit the pace of those around you, head the right direction because together we get to where the Lord is calling us. And as we come back to this whole stream analogy, does it ever work to try to rush somebody across the stream? You see all these slippery rocks in front of you, the humility, the gentleness, the patience, the tolerance, the love. And you say, just keep going, run, run. If you go faster, it'll be better. Only a YouTuber would do that to get a million hits video on the person falling. That's not how we do it. You never run across the stream on the slippery rocks unless a bear is chasing you. And then Paul comes to this last rock, and the last rock in the stream is love. Everyone say love. Yeah, I feel good. It feels good up here to have you guys say love. It's love. It's that love. And what Paul is talking about is he's talking about that agape, that God's love. But the community that he was speaking to, the city that he was talking to, the Greeks, they commonly and they celebrated eros love. It's that erotic love. It's that fleshly love, that sexual appealing love that's, that's in it only for what I can get, what I can feel for right now. It's a commodity based. So when he was speaking to the Ephesians, he wasn't talking about that Get what you can and move on, that eros love. And he wasn't even talking about that friendship, the phileo, that friendship love, that warm, noble, and deep friendships. But the rock that he's talking about, because even the friendship love can fail you. You know, as a friend, I've had friends fail me. 
And as a friend, I've failed other friends. How many of you have ever failed one of your friends and you wish you could go back in time? If I could turn back time. Right? So you want to go back there. But erotic love, phileo love will even fail you. He's looking at that agape love, that God love, that rock love, that grace-filled love. All these things that we talked about. The humility, the gentleness, that patience, that inviting in. See, this is the love that we see in John 3.16 of for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Even while I was still a sinner, even while I was struggling with my faults, even while I was jumping from rock to rock, even landing on the wrong rocks. Paul's saying pay attention to these rocks because there are other rocks in the stream. But they will devastate you and they will hurt you. And then this comes on to our last point this morning. This is unity. Everyone say unity. Unity, okay, unity, this is our goal. Paul says here in verse 3, he says that we're called to be united together in the Spirit, binding yourselves together in peace, in peace. It's that peace of God. In verse 11, it says, now these are, the, these are the gifts. These are the gifts that Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. The responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. Then he says, this will continue until we all come to such what? Unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. And then he goes on in verse 14, he says in 14, then we will no longer be immature like children. We will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. You ever did that? Somebody was so clever, he's like, well, that sounds true. Instead, we will speak the truth in love. Growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. This is how we walk. How do we walk? Together. We walk together. We were made to be together. It's not good for us to be alone. That's why we came here Sunday, even though we're still in mourning because the Wi-Fi went out last night. We come together. This is how we walk together. Psalms 133, we quoted earlier, said, how good and pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity. In unity, everyone operating in the gift. See, working together, when you work with somebody, you learn a lot about them, don't you? This is why a lot of times parents and aunts and uncles or whoever, when you work with somebody, when you coach somebody, when you do some tutoring to somebody, it's not just about the math or the music that you're doing, but you learn that person, don't you? And that person learns you because you work on something. When our team, we sent 20 people recently down to the Dominican Republic. They learned a lot of ministry. They poured out a lot of ministry. But you know what they learned a lot about? Each other. They learn a lot about each other. They grew in each other. They encouraged one another. It's in the aspect of walking together that we grow and that we learn. So much so that unity is a sign of maturity. You walk into any organization, any office building, any family, wherever you go, if you sense unity, that's a sign of maturity. And the opposite is true. You walk into any kind of a setting and there isn't unity. There's just, there's discord, there's arguing. It's a sign of what? 
a sign of immaturity. They've not learned how to work together yet. They're not on the same page together. They're not growing. Their effectiveness goes down. Everything goes down. See, unity is a state of oneness with God and with each other. But in order to maintain unity, it requires that we are God-focused. That we're not like children that are easily tossed. See, when I was a child, I was very easily tossed. My emotions were like this. They were up, they were down, they were easily tossed, affected by whatever was going on around me. I could be terribly upset, and then my dad would come home with a Snickers bar, and it's all good. I'm happy. And then I was told I had to wait till after dinner, and I was right back to sad and anger. But for dinner, we're having meatloaf, and I was happy again. I love meatloaf. And then we got to after it, and my sister stole the Snickers bar, and I was ex extremely sad again. Does that ever happen to you in life? I'm up, I'm down, I'm up, I'm down. Or maybe you have people that you work with like that. See, I hadn't grown up yet. I hadn't matured yet. This is why we need to be unified in Christ. Unity is what brings us together. This is why in verse 15 he says, speak the truth in love, growing in every way more like Christ. See, it's, it's hard to speak the truth and to be heard when someone is not unified with you. Have you ever tried to speak to somebody but they weren't on the same page with you? That's a difficult day, isn't it? It's a hard conversation. It's a hard week for a company. If you can't get somebody on the same page with your business, their future is very short with your company, isn't it? Those of you that have managed teams, when you can't get somebody on the same page as you, and you've worked hard and you've worked hard and you've worked hard, it gets to the point where it starts to bring the entire team down. And so Paul is looking at us. He's saying, you're the body of Christ. There's a call in your life. God has provided everything that you need. I beg you, walk in a way that is worthy of your calling. I'm laying the stones out. Walk in humility. Walk in patience with each other. Allow for each other's faults that you have. Be, and be gentle about it. Don't push. No shoving. Be unified. See, this, this being unified is evidence of the Spirit of God in us. It's evidence of the presence of Christ in us. It's one of the signs of his love at work in our lives. This is why Jesus said, Jesus said this in John 17. Listen to this. Jesus said, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. See, our unity shows that we're part of God's kingdom. I think that's why people often, they get so confused about the gospel and they get so confused about who God is, myself included, when there's disagreements in the body of Christ that we don't work through, that we don't walk through with all the things we talked about, humility, gentleness, patience, love, tolerance, making allowance for each other's faults. This is how we were made to be with one another. This is how we grow as a family. Every day when my kids go out the door, I pray that they would be aware of the Spirit of God around them. See, the presence of God is everywhere, isn't it? We know that. His presence fills the earth, but I'm like, I want your spirit to be alive in me. I want your spirit to be alive in my children, in the body of Christ. 
so that we would hear the call. We would walk in unity with you. We would be together. If as a family, if as a body of believers, if we would embrace this, do you know what the Lord would do through us? We know it's the will of the Lord that everybody in Shoreline, everybody in Mount Lake Terrace, Linwood, Kenmore, Seattle, North City, the entire world would know the grace of God. And he's looking at us and saying, can you get on the same page? Can you come together around the word of God? Can you be filled with the gospel? Can you be filled with my spirit? I've given you everything that you need. Your confidence is in me. Your strength is in me. Your provision is in me. Get on the page. See what I can do in your family. See what I can do in your relationship. See what I can do in your workplace, in your neighborhood. Hear my call. Walk a life worthy of your calling. It's critical, but it's costly. But do that in a way that considers others better than yourself and watch what happens. Watch what happens, amen? Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for the call that you have, the call that you have raised to us as individuals, but also to us as a body of Christ, as a community here at Shoreline Community Church. You're preparing us and you're getting us ready. Lord, I pray that in these moments as we now respond to your word, that you would speak to us, that the words speak your servant is listening are not just words that we say, but they're actions that we live. Open our ears, remove every hindrance, every voice as we sang earlier. We're no longer a slave to fear because we're a child of God. We're no longer a slave to fear. We're a child of God. Amen. Amen. As Stephanie and the team leads us this morning, I want to encourage you to say that to the Lord. Lord, speak. Remove anything, any hindrance that would prevent me from hearing you. God's going to speak to you. I want to encourage you to write it down. Tell somebody respond in that. And as we respond, we have prayer team. And I want to invite the prayer team to go to the sides. Wonderful people. I think everyone needs to go to these people and just pray. Or maybe you want to turn to the person next to you and say, would you pray for me? I'm struggling with this. Or just pray as the Lord gives you discernment. We have prayer walls. Let's take some time to respond. Write it down. Speak it out. Enact that response. With humility, with gentleness to those around you. Amen. Lord, now we respond to you. Put feet to our faith. Speak, your servants are listening. In your name. Let's respond and worship to the Lord today.